This podcast is sponsored today by Janet Brooks, Realty One Group. Realty One Group has three locations to conveniently serve you in North Kansas City, Overland Park, and downtown Lee Summit. I can personally recommend Janet as she sold my house a couple of years ago when I was making a difficult life transition. She also just helped my parents downsize and sell their house to find a new home closer to my sisters. Janet is knowledgeable, compassionate, and caring as she works to help you through the real estate process. I would highly encourage you to check out Janet or any of the agents at Realty One Group. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Now we'll be cutting to audio from the live panel discussion where Fred Heron is talking about shame and the studies that Brene Brown has done on this topic. And so one of the ways that shame reveals itself in, in her studies that she's brought out is this idea of never good enough, never good enough. So, and she found that women in general, and this isn't, you know, this isn't, but this is just in general, women many times experience shame in, in a certain way, men experience shame in another way. So those are just generalizations, but, but she would say that for women, many times shame is, is about imperfection. So in a world where uh, women are supposed to look perfect, be perfect, do perfect, um, shame is that feeling of I'm not perfect and I'm never going to be perfect and I can't live up and I can't keep all the, ba the balls, you know, juggling and all those kind of things. And, and internally there's that sense of, of just deep imperfection and I'm never going to be good enough. Mothers can feel shame certainly when they feel judged by other mothers for not being a good mother. And women can feel shame when they're not good enough or feel well, like they feel like they're not good enough at home, at work, in bed with their parents or with their kids. Shame is never enough. Uh, for men, again, a generalization, many times shame is failure, uh, a sense of failure at work, a sense of failure in your marriage, a sense of failure in the bedroom or with money or with your children. So for men, uh, they can experience shame. Uh, showing fear can be a shameful experience for men. Um, revealing a weakness, being vulnerable <laughs> can be a, sh a feeling of shame for men. Like they don't want to be weak or vulnerable, right? Uh, being wrong, being criticized, these can all produce shameful experiences. So this is her studies. The other big area that she defined in her studies of shame is this unwanted story or identity. So we, we experience shame when we have an unwanted story or an unwanted identity. So this could be a story of abuse. This could be a story of failure. This could be a story of unwanted exposure. It could be a story of weakness could be a story of imperfection. But at a deep level, we feel flawed and unworthy of love and connection. And shame makes us feel small. This is kind of how we feel. We, we feel small and we feel like we want to just be invisible and disappear. So those are just some of the, the research points. In her in her most listened to TED Talk in 2012, The Power of Vulnerability, uh, Brene talked about how we live in a culture of American people that are the most medicated, over-medicated, obese, in debt culture in American history, right? And um, typically Americans like to sort of numb the things that they feel most uncomfortable with. So we like to numb our feelings, right? 
So my, my big metaphor for what I like to use for numbing myself was cookies and cream, you know, like bluebell cookie and cream ice cream, right? And those of you who were in Vineyard know those stories well. But um, the, you know, the, the thing that the studies show is that you can't selectively numb just your negative emotions. So we think we can, right? We want, we want to just selectively, we don't want to lose our joy. We don't want to lose our, our love and our compassion and all the positive feelings, but we do want to lose some of those negative ones. So uh, I, like, I like what she says. She says, you can't say, here's the bad stuff. Here's the vulnerability. Here's the grief. Here's the shame. Here's the fear. Here's the disappointment. I don't want to feel these. So I'm going to have a couple of beers and eat a banana nut muffin. It just doesn't work that way. Like you can't selectively numb your emotion. So it's a human experience. I mean, if you go back into the oldest religious stories of the ancient Near Eastern worldviews and even uh, one of the, the early story in, in the uh, Hebrew scriptures, you know, there's this shame story, right? Like you, you, there's the hiding, there's the fig leaf, there's the, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm. I'm not naked and unashamed anymore. Like I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm naked and I'm ashamed. And so the, there's, these stories go way back. And of course there's cultures that uh, reflect more of a shame honor culture and have more of a collective thinking kind of culture. So shame can be even more severe in some cultures than in say like individual Western cultures, but we still all have an experience of shame at some level or another. It's really a, a common human experience. So one of the things about healing shame, which, and it is something that needs to be healed and there's degrees of it, right? Uh, we probably, I, I still carry some of it, but vulnerability is a pathway to healing shame. It seems counterintuitive. Like who in the world wants to talk about the things that make them most ashamed? I mean, that's, those are the things we want to hide and cover up and, and not reveal. But the crazy thing is, is that when we actually share with another human being our shame, it begins a pathway toward healing. Brene says that uh, when we deny the story, when we deny the story, it defines us. But if we own it, if we own the story, then we can write a brave new ending. And so I, I love that uh, idea there. Certainly something that I'm trying to embrace. And there's an art to vulnerability. So, you know, finding the right people to share around your shame with. It could be a friend. It could be a therapist. It could be a group. You know, one of the things about living in a big city, um, one of the things about living in, in this pandemic world that we live in is everything has gone on Zoom. And so like, if you just Google the issue that you're struggling with, you can probably find a support group that's dealing with that. And, and I'm in multiple different types of support groups. And I found um, that, that that's just been a wonderful place of safety to be able to work through and share and talk about my shame. And so uh, friends, therapists, and I think support groups are great places to begin that pathway to healing and to start sharing vulnerably. You know, not all sharing is, is, is healthy sharing. Sometimes people overshare. I've been in a lot of small groups through the years where people almost like overshare. So that they see if they're going to, if you're going to reject them or accept them. And if you reject them, it kind of just reinforces their shame and, you know, kind of oversharing and in places that aren't really safe, isn't really the pathway to vulnerability and healing. So there is an art to, you know, having safe people, the right friends, the right therapist, the right group, support group that is safe, that you can share and will be healing. I found that for my own shame, I needed people who would listen to everything I had done, things that I didn't even want to share and say out loud. And then they still loved me. And I needed that fleshing out of that love to see that, oh gosh, I am still lovable. Um, so I think there's a, there's a power in that. In, in Brene's book, Daring Greatly, she uh, ends one of her chapters, the chapter called Understanding Combating Shame. She ends with a children's story from the Velveteen Rabbit written in 1922. 
and it's by Marjorie Williams. It's a children's story. And it's kind of like pre-Toy Story where the, the, the animals talk, right? You know, and the, and the children's animals talk. And so there's a, there's a rabbit and a skin horse. And they have a conversation. And it's about being real or about being vulnerable, if you will. Okay. So here's how the conversation goes. Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But things don't really matter at all like that because once you're real you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand so I'm going to introduce our panel for tonight all right on vulnerability and shame and um, I'm going to invite uh, Pam Hausner to come on up Pam is many things. I've grown to love her very much and appreciate her, but she is a mindful meditation teacher. And that's where my life has intersected with Pam. Thank you for being here, Pam. Uh, I want to invite uh, Cricket, Dr. Cricket Burwell up. Cricket is a therapist. Um, we probably connected a couple of years ago and I've grown to uh, love and appreciate her. She was a professor at the University of Georgia taught marriage and therapy and uh, sex uh, therapy and all. I don't know all, all the things, but uh, thank you for being here, Cricket. I appreciate you. And I want to invite up Andrew Potter. Andrew and I met uh, back when he attended Vineyard Church, when I was a pastor, his parents and his uh, brother and sister. And um, Andrew is Army Ranger, uh, three tours in Afghanistan. He is the uh, co-founder of ROKC, which is a rock climbing place, which uh, I, I started rock climbing over 40 years ago. So, so I love Andrew just for that thing alone. He, they have three different climbing gyms in Kansas City. Uh, and uh, then they also uh, run a software company. So uh, thank you, Andrew, for being here. And then I want to invite up Rachel Lee and Rachel and I met way back at Vineyard Church years ago and she is a podcast hope with uh, the problem of perfect and she actually reached out to me uh, many months ago and did a podcast with me kind of on my story on her podcast so Rachel thank you for being here and then Calvin Arsenia is here and Calvin and I, uh, I had a, one of my friends said, you need to meet Calvin. And I, I started sending him uh, a message on Instagram and uh, I tried to convince him that I wasn't just a crazy stalker. And uh, he finally uh, answered my, my text when I told him about my uh, story of, of pastoring and all that. And, and I'm so grateful. I've loved uh, getting to know Calvin and love his, uh, his music his songwriting, his, his story is super brave and I've been inspired by him. So uh, we are going to do uh, each person on the panel is going to share roughly their own experience of a, and just take a few minutes to do that. Their own experience with shame. And then once everybody has shared their experience, then I'm going to kind of open it back up for short comments, because as we listen to other people, we might have some comments or some some closing comments that we want to make on the panel. So I'll go ahead and uh, try to model bravery and courage and start off. How's that? All right. And, uh, and Cricket is going to go last. So everybody else needs to go between me and Cricket. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to...
Yes. So I am going to speak to um, because we're this this is going out to a, a large podcast audience. Um, and so I want to speak to people who will be listening in who don't know anything about me or my story. And and all of us might be mindful of that as well. But I'm Fred Heron and I uh, was senior pastor of Vineyard Church for almost uh, well, for 28 years. Um, I grew up in the Kansas City area. I went to Park Hill High School. As a teenager, I became a follower of Jesus and felt called to be a pastor. And so I uh, went to Baylor University, went to Southwestern Seminary. Uh, I went to, uh, I, I, I went out on the East Coast, was uh, associate pastor out there for a while, but I moved back to Kansas City in 1990 and started Vineyard Church with, with like three or four or five people. And the church just kind of grew each year for 28 years. Uh, it grew to several thousand people. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was what I did, and it was, it was my calling, and, and, and how I, uh, it was my career. I was, I, I was ordained as a pastor when I was 18 years old, okay? But uh, in, in about 2015, 16, somewhere in there, about 2016, I went through what I call now just like a three-quarter life crisis. I wish I could say it was a midlife crisis, but I'm a little too old for a midlife crisis, all right? So um, I went through a three-quarter life crisis, and basically the, the elements of that crisis were, one was insomnia. Uh, I had slept on average about three hours a night for close to 30 years, um, and I just read a lot at night. I've always been a reader. I've I'd gotten one doctorate from Fuller Seminary, and I was working on a second PhD in the Hebrew Bible. And so I always got a lot of reading done at night, did not much sleeping, but a lot of reading. And I just lived with it. I just I could get by with short amount of sleep. But when I hit 55, I started thinking, gosh, um, I, it just started wearing on me. I just really wanted to get to where I shut my brain off. And so. I was never really a drinker or a, a drug user all during my pastoral years, but I started like doing a glass of wine or a couple of shots at night to try to catch a couple extra hours of sleep. And I thought that's not a good long-term plan. So I went to a psychiatrist at 55. He put me on a lot of different things, but Xanax is what worked like a magic pill. I took it every night. And then after nine months, it started wearing off. And I foolishly started adding uh, shots of vodka back in with the Xanax. So now I'm on Xanax and vodka, right? Every night. And then I'm still doing everything full blast. Uh, but I also went through a huge ministry burnout experience in 2016 to the point where uh, by the fall of 2016, I really needed a break and I didn't think I could afford to take one. And I don't mean financially afford, but I just meant there was so much on the calendar that I thought, well, I'll take one in 2018. I'd been burned out before and I'd always bounced out of it. So I just thought I'd bounce out of it again. Uh, so that wasn't a, a smart move. And, um, and then my wife had moved uh, in with her mother to take care of her full time. So I was living alone at home, burned out on Xanax and alcohol. And, uh, and I was like, oh my goodness. Um, there were marriage issues that had never really been dealt with. And so uh, I, I ended up being unfaithful, but I hit it. I didn't tell anybody. I was ashamed of it. I didn't want to tell anybody. And that was in the fall of 17. And I think over the course of that next year, nobody really knew what was going on. But um, by, the, by the fall of 2018, I was basically told my board I needed to go to rehab or get off Xanax and alcohol. I was sent to a rehab, ended up being there for 120 days. And while I was in rehab, my story, of, uh, my story came out uh, in the Kansas City Star Sunday edition, picture on the front page, two-page article in, in December of 2018. And then that story, um, this is while I was in rehab, went not only nationwide, but internationally. I had started churches all over the world. And so this story of I was an addict, an alcoholic, and an adulterer went not only citywide, but nationwide and worldwide. And it was released on every major religious news feed that is out there, conservative ones, 
non-conservative ones everywhere. So while I was in rehab, my board asked for my resignation. My wife filed for divorce and I came home. I had to put the house up for sale, hire a, a lawyer. And in 2019, I bottomed out with shame. Like I would, I would say I wasn't suicidal. Like if 10's being on top of the world, one's being suicidal, I was a two. And I mean, it was the darkest year I've ever had in my life. My faith felt shattered. So I felt ashamed of, I felt shame because my faith was shattered. I felt shame because uh, I'd been exposed publicly. I'd often preach, I said, how would you like to be in the Bible and your worst moment be recorded in the Bible for everybody to read for all of history? And I, now I feel like I I'm kind of living in that nightmare a little bit because my worst experience just got spread all over. Uh, so I felt, I felt, uh, every kind of shame that I could could experience. And it was dark, 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 dark. And uh, I I'd got up and I just didn't even really want to get up and face the day, just day after day after day after day. And I'm not out of that shame yet, but that's the core of my shame. And then I had to go back and look at shame from a religious experience, from uh, how, my, how my sexuality operated, how, how I had shame in my marriage, all these kinds of components uh, to my shame had to be dealt with and, and processed. And so that is, uh, and I'm still not out of the woods on shame yet, by the way, but I'm healing and I'm getting better. And I thought, well, let's tackle it. So that's what we're doing tonight. So I'm going to quit right there and pass it on to the next panel person. I'm not out of the woods either. Um, I feel like shame is so ubiquitous and the world we live in and I don't know, maybe it's something that I'll always deal with, not sure. We'll find out what it always looks like. But I know one of the things that actually prevented me from working with my shame is I didn't know it was there. I, it, it's like racism or privilege. Um, we, we often like, we swim in those waters. We don't know it's there. And I was born into a world that, in, that was designed around my shame. I, my father was a very conservative pastor. I love my father very much. I have no bad memories of my father. He was a wonderful, loving man. But the things that he taught and the way I understood the Bible let me know from my understanding that I was a worm, that I was of no value, that any value I could possibly have would only be by dying to myself and living through Christ. So I was born into that, plus I was a female. And we were very conservative, so we had a lot of rules, and most of them were around being female. All the things that we should hide all the things that, the ways we should behave so we're not too loud. You know, don't make too much of an impression or impact on this world because you're to be subject to the man. And I was in a family that had, not my dad, a very, not my mom either actually, but a very sharp humor. And I was the youngest. So um, teasing, and being critical was, was the water I swam in, right? So when I went to school and I dressed strange, didn't know I dressed strange till I went to school, then I realized, oh, I can't wear that, I can't wear that, I can't do that, I can't look like that, I can't go to those places. Everything about me let me know I was a freak. And when the kids, uh, picked on me and they were merciless I thought of course they would I'm a freak I deserved it 
I did not know this environment was not to be normal, right? I didn't know I was bullied until like I was in my 40s or 50s and it dawned on me, oh, duh, that was being bullied. Um, but the, the thing that bothered me the most about that world and that environment is it hid me, that shame hid me from hearing my own inner voice. There's the verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that shame that anything that came from me would be desperately wicked pervaded everything that I did. And the way I survived through that was, well, I'll just be right. I'm going to be so right. And then I figured, like, I studied the Bible and I studied every, all the devotional approaches to how I was raised. Like, how can I be right? And I was really good at being right. I, even though I was younger and I was asking the right questions that might have brought me out of some of that, I accepted the answers that were given because my heart was deceitful, right? So I also created this ability to hide because that's what shame does. It hides and it isolates. So as I, that's one reason mindfulness is so powerful to me. Mindfulness allows us to look inside and to listen and to look at the layers of what's happening there. And so when I, I was able to identify shame and we learn in mindfulness that you don't put aside negative emotions, that you allow them, you recognize them for what this is. In fact, we even like kind of dance around the term negative because uh, that causes us to want to avoid it, right? We want to fix it or get over it or spiritual bypass our way around it. So um, by recognizing it and allowing it to be there, I was then able to transform it. I am transforming it um, by connecting to myself. I'm now free. I can recognize, oh, this kept me from my inner voice. So, all right, I see you, shame. Now I'm going to listen. And what that has opened up is an entirely new way of being in the world. It has opened up from my isolation into compassion and a determination to be inclusive, actively inclusive, because I know how terrible it feels to be isolated. So my time is up, but those are some of the ways that I handled shame. <laughs> oh, I can go. Is this working? Um, I wouldn't have been able to do this in 2015. Uh, I was just thinking about that sitting here, but um, I, we moved here from Germany in 1998 up to, to Parkville and um, after college I went to University of Central Missouri and studied criminal justice because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I was going to go into the army and criminal justice was just like the run-of-the-mill degree to get. Um, some slight regret there. <laughs> I could have studied anything and I, um, and I chose something that I wasn't passionate about. But um, I joined the Army in 2009, ended up doing three tours to Afghanistan as a U.S. Army Ranger and essentially went through hell. Uh, I, I came back from my third tour in 2014 and uh, I, I, I suffer from post-traumatic stress. Um, I still do today. It causes a lot of different things like hypervigilance, um, things that I don't even recognize until my wife's like, yo, dude, <laughs> you're good. Um, like sitting in a restaurant and I always pick um, the seat that faces the door uh, because I don't, I don't like to feel exposed. Um, and so suffering from post-traumatic stress, from being in war, uh, is what has caused a majority of, of my shame because of our culture. And our culture says uh, that you shouldn't be weak, you know? 
You shouldn't show emotions or cry. Uh, you shouldn't show vulnerability. And the reality is when you go to war, you shouldn't um, because when your friend gets shot, uh, you have two choices. I can sit here and cry and feel sorry for myself, or I can pick him up, move to cover and return fire. And so uh, what you do in war is you shut everything off and uh, you, you numb all emotions because that is survival. And if you do any research into the brain, you'll find that essentially the amygdala gets overworked, uh, which doesn't allow your prefrontal cortex to use compassion and empathy to make decisions. And then you're in the United States driving down the highway and there's a box on the side of the road and you drive off the highway because you think it's a bomb when compassion would have told you, hey, Andrew, you're in America and you're fine. <laughs> like, that's just trash. Um, and so <clears throat> dealing with post-traumatic stress, there's a lot of shame uh, around feeling broken and feeling weak and feeling less than, and then not wanting people to know that you're broken. Because let's be honest, in our culture, I'm supposed to be this like big tough guy, U.S. Army Ranger. Like I don't cry. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm hardened, you know? And, and the reality is like Brene Brown says, uh, you can't selectively numb emotions. So when you numb the ability to cry or you numb the ability to feel true sadness, you also numb the ability to feel like love or compassion, uh, empathy, you know, and those were things I lacked for a long time, which, you know, inhibits my ability to be a good husband and a good father and like understand what others are going through. And uh, so for me, there's been a journey um, since 2015 and starting uh, to, to notice that, you know, I've, I numbed everything that I, I had to learn what vulnerability was and I had to, you know, be able to look at my shame and recognize it and be like, you know what? That's a part of me and that's okay. And so if I was really honest about like what I'm, what my shadow is, uh, is, is my ego. Like I wanna be really good at what I, what I do. I wanna be the best at it. And, um, and so I carry shame around that, uh, around like, am I good enough? Am I enough for this? Um, or am I trying to boast more than I need to, to be something that I'm not? And so what I've realized is if, if I can recognize that every day, um, and, and recognize the shame that I carry and understand, you know what, it's a part of me and that's okay. It's not going anywhere. Um, I've been able to, to grow and understand that it doesn't have to define me, but it's not going anywhere. Like, this is my story. Um, I'm definitely not ashamed about that. I wouldn't be the man I am today if I hadn't been through what I've been through. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a real challenge that I, I've gone through um, from my experience, but uh, through, you know, <laughs> being more, more vulnerable um, and, and, and accepting challenges like this, thank you by the way, um, it has helped me to be a, a better version of myself. So thank you. Well, hello everyone. My name is Rachel and as Fred mentioned earlier, I started going to the Vineyard Church back when I was a little girl and uh, that really starts, I think I've, I've always had this feeling of growing up that if I did all the right things in life would end up okay. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way too, that if I did A plus B, it would always equal C. And it did for a long portion of my life so far, where if I was a good enough girl, then I would achieve all the things that I wanted. And that was true until about the time that I graduated college. And all of a sudden, all the things that I was hoping to achieve for my life weren't happening. And me as a young 22 year old girl, I was like, oh, I just need to work harder. Or if I'm better, then it will be okay. And so I would push harder. And then I still would not be succeeding in the areas that I really wanted. And I just became so frustrated, frustrated at myself, frustrated at God because I grew up um, 
in the faith. And <laughs> it got to the point where I was like, whatever, I just really don't care anymore. And I kind of, um, I rebelled, but in a quiet way, I guess, because on the outside, no one else knew that I was struggling so much. And that's really where the shame came in uh, that I started to hide. I was still the normal person of myself to everybody else, but inside I was really in turmoil. Um, and so about two years ago, I was approached by um, my co-host now, Robin, and she asked me to start a podcast that we call The Problem With Perfect. And it's a cross-generational conversation about all the ways that people feel like they have to have it all and be it all to feel worthy. And it's funny because I've never tied shame to that until tonight where I heard Fred actually literally give the definition, definition, especially with women, that it's always feeling like you have to have it all and be it all. And that's something that honestly, I still struggle with to this very day in every area of my life. In my career, oh, I'm not really achieving unless I tell somebody what I do and they have an impressed look on their face, or I'm not achieving unless I work out all the time and have the best body that would be compared to cultural standards. Um, you name it of something that somebody would struggle with of wanting to be enough. And I probably am dealing with it. And really what that has led to in my life has been severe anxiety to where, um, I feel like I am functioning fine to the outside world, but again, shutting down on the inside and a lot of imposter syndrome. So shame really bleeds into all these other areas of my life as well. Um, but thankfully through the podcast, that's actually been a major healer because through interviewing others and hearing their stories and then having the vulnerability hang over myself, anytime I share something uh, super scary, it's funny because I always think those episodes, no one will want to listen to them and they'll be awful. And then they always end up being our most popular episodes. So what that tells me and what I've learned as a storyteller is that when someone, all these people today are sharing their stories and being vulnerable and sharing what they have gone through, everybody listening can see themselves within that story. And it helps us know that we're not alone because really what we all want is to be our vulnerable, authentic selves to the people we love and they look back and tell us, I love you just as you are. So that's something that I'm trying to learn in my relationships. And like everybody else is saying, understand that shame is a natural part of life, but uh, we can understand it and move forward. So nothing too dramatic, but I think that shame really does impact us in even the small ways every day. My name is Calvin Arsenia. Um, I am a musician, singer, songwriter based here in Kansas City. I um, also have um, quite a, a deep past in the westernized Christian church. Um, I was involved in ministry, volunteering um, throughout my high school career and then became a missionary to Edinburgh, Scotland for two years from 2012 to 2014. And um, if you had told my, uh, my high school self uh, exactly what I would be doing today, um, <laughs> I would have raged. Um, and, and it was, it dawned on me a couple months back that I'm currently living my, 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 my younger self's worst nightmare <laughs> as an openly gay um, musician, singer, songwriter, entertainer of sorts. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, I think there might've been this little inkling of relief to say that, you know, that I, that I could live authentically and that I would be supported and that I would be loved and that I would experience love and that I would experience family and that I would experience all of these things that I thought was, would be cut off for someone like me. Um, in the church, we are taught that, uh, that we, we were taught that that unless you are trying so hard and we, you know, we've heard about conversion therapy and we've heard about all these things, unless you're trying to, to will away, um, who you are or the things that, um, that seem taboo, um, or <laughs> like, and also deny them to say that they are not a part of who you are, that you're not actually experiencing them because our testimony is said to be the thing that is to be the witness of God. And that if we are to be, to be people who have been touched by God, then we should be fixed. And that if we are not fixed, then maybe 
then we, how can we be a witness of, of who God is? If we are not fixed, then how can we tell other people about this God? Um, and, 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 and is, is his power thorough enough if it hasn't fixed the one who's telling other people about him? And so you have this, um, this dilemma that if you are vulnerable and authentic and speaking your truth and talking about the things that, that have been, that, that are taboo within that community, then, then you're not allowed to be in leadership positions. You're not allowed to share the news of the good news of the gospel. And in my experience, since leaving the church, um, and that process kind of happened through having non, non-Christian friends while I lived in Edinburgh, musicians, singers, songwriters, poets, artists, who, who I decided to take Jesus's word as an experiment, which was this, that the truth will set you free. And I took those words very seriously, and I went to my friends who were non-Christians, and I said, listen, this is my truth. Um, I am actively here as a missionary. I was being paid by people in America to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, I will have another shot. <laughs> Most of the open mic nights were happening in bars and things, and that's, that's their love language over there. Um, but, um, and, and what I realized is that, the, and they, they continued to offer me compassion and to say, that's okay, whatever, you know, I love you as you are, who you are. And, and that was something that I had never experienced up until that point, or, or, and, and I did, didn't believe it was out there for me. I didn't think that, that, that it was possible to be loved and also be so forthright and talking about something that, was, that would be otherwise um, uh, something that, that meant that I was no, not able to be in community. And, and I have seen pastors go through what you've gone through, you know, uh, Fred, and um, I've seen um, uh, people in leadership positions come out and be honest with them with, with where they're at in life and then remove from the community. Um, and what we lose from that is, is the experience and the knowledge and the wisdom of saying like, because as somebody who's lived as a homosexual now for several years, there are so many people that I remember growing up with who I never saw again after they came out and have never have never been able to connect with them. And it's interesting to think that maybe I'm that person to other people now, you know? Um, but there's a lot of love in the world and a lot that we can learn from, from, from gathering all of the perspectives, from saying that these are things that we can overcome, these are things that we can live through, these are things that we can also experience love inside of. And, um, and and through talking about um, about these things that I've been ashamed of, I have found that there is so much love in the world. Yeah. Hi, my name is Cricket. There we go. Um, I'll try to speak up so you can hear me. Um, I just want to say what a privilege and honor it is to be here um, to listen to all the testimonies of shame because it is such a taboo in our culture to talk about openly. And so I just want you all to know that I hear you and I see you. Um, in 2014, I moved to Kansas City from Austin, Texas. And at the time, I was pregnant and excited to give birth um, in a couple of months to a healthy baby boy, but that didn't happen. Um, one week after moving to Kansas City, I went into early labor and had a stillborn child. And I'm tra I'll try not to get emotional about it as I talk about it, but it's still very difficult. I felt ashamed in that time because I felt like my body betrayed me. I couldn't carry healthily an infant son, and I felt like all the things I was supposed to do were vanishing, which were impossible to achieve, and I felt um, really alone in that because my partner at the time, who was my fiance, uh, told me that he didn't ever want to talk about it again. and. 
I didn't know anyone here. I just moved here. I didn't have any social support locally. Um, my family was also devastated by what had happened. And so I didn't feel like I wanted to burden them with my own grief and my own struggle. So I kept it to myself mostly. Um, and so what ensued was um, drinking. That seemed to help help me cope and um, help me deal with the severe pain of that loss. And um, years later, I was sitting in a therapist's office and uh, I was talking with her and um, I said, I think I might have a drinking problem. And she said, let's talk about that. What does that look like for you? And I said, well, I drink to not feel anything and it works. Often I black out and can't remember conversations or, or driving or different things that I've done. And um, I make really bad decisions. <laughs> she said, I think that qualifies. I think that's something you need to take a look at and deal with. So uh, that's another level of shame is being a therapist and, and, and not being able to deal with my own issues you know, of grief, loss, uh, addiction. Um, and so that weighed really heavily on me too. My testimony, my shame testimony is that, um, you know, it, it's life does get better. And uh, Brene Brown is right. When you're in secrecy and um, that shame can really build and isolation, that shame can really build. And so I wanted to be here tonight to be able to share this, to, to show other people that you can share in safe spaces, that they're available, that they're out there and that they make a difference. Thanks to all of you. Um, one of the things that I uh, love about like this panel and other people who own their stories and talk about the hard things is that there is the bravery and the courage of the people that do that. And I have been inspired um, by all of these stories and so many more um, of people who like get vulnerable, share their story and, and the courage and the bravery from my perspective that it takes to, to walk through that is, is amazing. It's been an inspiration to me. So I, I would just wanted to, um, you know, as you heard other people's, uh, stories here tonight, I thought if, if any of you have like a, a comment that you'd like to add, it could be either to your own story or maybe a reflection that came to your mind as somebody else shared. Um, I, I just want to open that up for any of you that would like to share a closing thought or comment uh, as it relates to what we just talked about as a panel. All right. So I told you I was good at hiding. So the way shame shows up for me frequently these days is I try to hide from new people I meet what my past was like because people look at you different if they think you grew up as a religious fringe. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then from the people that I used to be in church with, that I was a church leader with and for, that they now know um, I've really changed <laughs> and I don't believe much of that anymore. So trying to navigate that in a way that is true, like I really understand how we need to like get love from others. I'm not dismissing the importance of love. I have dedicated my life to love, all right? But I also know that to hear my inner voice, I can't look at anyone else to tell me what is right. And so that way I can like, I love what you said, Adam. This is, we're gonna run with this tonight. You see shame and you say, oh, there it is. I'm okay with it. And you do the right thing and you listen to what's inside of you. So thanks for that. 
Um, so something that was just coming into my head, uh, something that was actually really helpful for me, uh, I think um, just our culture and, and society can be really productive of shame um, because of the way we live and, and, and because of the way our society is, uh, and especially in America. And uh, what I found was it's not a measure of good health to be extremely well adapted to a sick society. And I, I believe we're fairly broken as a society. Um, we're fairly broken in the way we treat each other, in the way we serve each other, in the way we walk through daily life. And so to be well adapted to that um, isn't necessarily healthy. Just because you're like doing things every day that seem like the right thing or the good thing or this or that, that doesn't in my impression mean that that's like the healthiest thing to do. I think, I think a lot of, a lot of people unfortunately, you know, fake it and I'm, I'm guilty of that fake it to get by. Um, and so if you can shed some of that adaptation and like be true to who you are, uh, you find you live a much healthier life, even though it may not look like what everybody else deems is, you know, culturally normal. That's, that's been really helpful for me to, you know, just be who I am. I think it's really important to, um, to find safe spaces um, and, and especially as somebody who like had to live closeted and transition out of that space, um, for years, I, I lived two lives, if not more, uh, working in, um, you know, Christian spaces and then also trying to find myself. Um, and whenever I speak to young people in particular, I always try to try to urge them to not just go and 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 burn every bridge that you have today. <laughs> this is a journey. This is a process. Um, however, what you can do is find safe places to be and and invest in those places. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.